Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the BFI podcast brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. I'm Anna. Hi, Anna. I have to start by saying there's some scrawl on your arm. What does that say and what's it all about? Yeah, so this is the mock-up for my next tattoo, um, <laughs> also known as the place where Agnes Varda signed her name, unrequested, I might add. Um, she, she just walked up to you and signed no, her name on your arm? No, we were in the green room after she had done her second event at the BFI South Bank, um, which was a Q&A after Beaches of Agnes. And there was a bunch of us there and she was doing a bit of signing and she signed a bunch of our arms wow. with different bits it's really cool and I promised her that I would get it tattooed probably not in this space yeah. but definitely somewhere else are you going to get heart around it as well or I just... mean yes Yeah. so we've been running the um, two month uh, retrospective of her work which started in June and finishes at the end of this month in July what else have you discovered this last two weeks that I know um, of something about well I'm now completely again embroiled with the new season of You Must Remember This the podcast by Karina Longworth you must a kiss just a kiss a are you listening to that as well I have started yeah welcome Welcome. She does this really weird kind of like she's taken her. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Her voiceover now to an extent where she's stretching her vowels into eternity. I think her taglines are fantastic. Yeah. I think when she goes... Join us, won't you? Join us then, won't you? 
join us, won't you? Good night. I love it. I love it. I think it's so difficult to find something like that that works, particularly for yeah. like a podcast host or any kind of radio host. Um, we clearly don't have one. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the subject matter this time is amazing as well. Oh, Kenneth Angus. Uh, have you Hollywood... read Hollywood Babylon? I have, yeah. That's one thing that I've picked up and connected <laughs> with. But it's a really good idea to kind of fact check that book oh, it's and find out the story, the true, true stories behind it. And I think her series about the Mansons was amazing as well. The Manson family. It was because it's so deeply tied in a very, um, you know, controversial. And in a way, you know, you could argue that it's very sensationalist in the same way that Hollywood Babylon is really. But she tied it into a cultural history of mm. a period and a time and a place. And I think she's kind of doing, going to do the same thing with this new season. And it's fascinating because that's what those two books, Hollywood Babylon kind of one and two, are the sort of books that you always discover when you're in university or when you're younger. And it seems like the most, um, you know, controversial book ever written about Hollywood. Was that how you picked it up? I think so. And I have to say, probably my wife's copy lying around at home I picked it up and the, the cover helped. And it's really interesting. She um, had an interview in Vanity Fair quite recently where she talked about how she, in the process of researching this book or this series that she's doing now, she's kind of reframed her position and her opinion on the book because she read it as well when she was younger mm. and had a kind of like a, a, you know, a text about Hollywood that would often reference. And now she's seeing a lot of the um, the misogyny in the book. And to be honest, I haven't reread it since my teens. So I'd be interested to, I'm fascinated by what she's cooking up with the, with the podcast season, but also would be interested to rereading it again and seeing it from a more adult perspective. Um, the way that she has talked about it now. Before we talk too much about You Must Remember This, because we want people to listen to this podcast, I've been catching up on Atlanta season two. Have you watched that? I haven't caught up oh, yet. It's so good. I know. It's I so know it's good. brilliant. I mean, he can do no wrong. The confidence of that show. No this is Paperboy. If you're tuned into the Fresh Mix rap playlist, long live fresh. Let's do it again. And just like this time, like you're at a party and everything's crazy. <laughs> Hey man, you gotta get up. What up? You, you saying? Damn, is you the landlord or something? <laughs> Robin season. Everybody gotta eat. Hey, yo, yo man, you just take a picture of me. No spoilers here, but they've started in this recent run, a, a run of four bottle episodes in a row. So they've basically abandoned plot and narrative and just given the characters room to do an episode for themselves, essentially, for half an hour. And it's just amazing. It's heartbreaking. It's depressing. It's funny on occasion, but it's just got weirder and weirder and weirder as well. How do really you strange. see Atlanta? Do you see it as a sitcom or as a drama or as a dramedy? You're going to get us robbed. I think it's a tragedy. I think it's mm -hmm. honestly a tragedy, like almost a PTSD vision of what um, America is for people who aren't white and mm -hmm. aren't particularly wealthy. And I know that Donald Glover, there's an amazing New Yorker piece interview mm -hmm. with Donald Glover and he talks about yes. it in those terms. And what's really fascinating is that even though Donald Glover's laying it all out there and putting his heart and soul mm -hmm. into it, he seems sick of making the show as well because he barely puts himself in it in this season. That is a slight spoiler, sorry. But there is 
an element of him just being like, I can tell you this story about how hard it is to be black in America mm -hmm. over and over again to, to a certain extent, and then I'm just done with it. And you can feel that fatigue in the show itself mm -hmm. as well, which just is it's heartbreaking to watch it as well. And it just it is so sad. I would call it a tragedy above all else. I read somewhere, I can't remember where right now, that he actually, to get it made, to get a green lid, he pitched it as a sitcom. Yeah. And there's this really, really interesting, and again, I've only seen season one, so I need to catch up with season two. There's this really fascinating video essay about it on a YouTube channel called Screen Prism. And they're an excellent channel anyway. Um, they very often kind of analyze and dig deep into both new um, films, TV shows, and a lot of um, rediscovery and repertory stuff as well. So we've got this excellent uh, piece on Atlanta being about how Atlanta is actually a sitcom that's reinventing sitcoms as well. Um, and it basically looks mostly at season one, because I think it was published just around the time that season two was coming out in America. Yeah, um, It's fascinating. And in fact, that's one of the things that I haven't actually watched films this week, yeah. but I have um, been watching a lot of video essays online, video essays on Evil Dead and Heathers and Atlanta and things like that. I think that's a really interesting critical space right now on YouTube, more than Vimeo or anywhere else, where, you know, there's these whole channels and particular personalities that are really digging deep visually um, into whatever feels relevant to them. Yeah. They feel really topical and they'll tackle subjects kind of around the time where they know um, that there's going to be a lot of public interest because, you know, a new season or a new DVD or a re-release or something like that is coming out. I'd be curious to see a video essay about Morris or Maurice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let's head back to film a little bit. This episode, we're going to be talking about Morris, which, released in 1987, is based on the book of the same name by E.M. Forster. Originally written in 1914, Forster's book remained unpublished until a year after his death in 1970. That was due to the author's nervousness about the subject matter. It's a gay love story between the title character and his Cambridge classmate, Clive. The Merchant Ivory film adaptation, re-released at the end of this month, is set in the early 20th century and stars James Wilby as Morris and Hugh Grant as Clive. By continuing like this, you and I are risking everything we have. Our families, our names. I don't even about me. Directed by James Ivory, it's a forthright and unsentimental depiction of a gay relationship in a time when homosexuality in Britain was illegal. Are there any happiness there is for me? There are other ways to be happy, you know. Morris has been described by some, namely Anna in the Google Doc we share for scripting for each episode, as, quote, the OG call me by your name. Morris, I hope nothing's wrong. Pretty well everything. Joining us to talk Morris is Brian Robinson. Brian is the programmer at BFI Flare. That's our annual LGBTQ plus film festival. Brian, how did critics and the public respond to Morris when it was released? Merchant Ivory had done really well earlier in the 1980s with films like Heat and Dust or A Room with a View. And they were a really successful duo, in fact, the whole, the whole team. Um, with Morris, they did very well at their world premiere festival outing at the Venice Film Festival, where they got awards for music and the acting duo of James Wilby and Hugh Grant um, got an acting award. And it was a critical success, but audiences didn't really flock. I think people weren't quite ready in 1987 for something where homosexuality was so ingrained as the main subject. 
And it's interesting, 30 years later, the film is having its re-release, that a lot has happened in terms of LGBTQ cinema in the past. And it may seem a little tame for some people, but it is in many ways a groundbreaker, certainly in terms of the novel, which is one of the earliest that deals explicitly with a gay love affair that doesn't end badly. And that must have been really significant at the time of the film's release, right? Because it was released in 1987, which was the height of the AIDS crisis in the UK and the US. Is is it significant that it has a happy ending because of that, that it's not a, a gay tragedy? I think the gay audience had been so used to seeing suicides or murders or just bad endings that they were very pleased for something that didn't do that. I mean... It was written over 100 years ago, and E.M. Forster really wanted a happy ending because it was something that he could not find for himself. And I think it was important at the time. It wasn't by any means the first happy ending in cinema, but it's it's one of the best, I think. It's a very well-constructed film. Everyone is really working at their hardest, I think, the whole team. I knew one of the co-costume makers on Morris who actually died of AIDS just a couple of years later. Um, But he was intensely, obsessively interested in every detail of Edwardian costume and wanted to get it absolutely right as much as he could. And he'd worked on several different Merchant Ivory productions. But um, we talk about E.M. Forster and his original novel and the adaptation by director James Ivory. But I think people don't often mention Kit Hesketh Harvey, who brought a real wit and charm to the script that I think is really important and and can sometimes be overlooked. And he's the person who adapted the book. He did indeed. I don't mean to be too negative about it, but to me there is some elements of the film that seem like like a fantasy film in that... An Edwardian relationship between two men would probably not have ended that way for those characters. And even in 1987, it was far from easy to be a gay man at the time. And do you think that's why people now are starting to respond to the film more or it's had a staying power? Because it it perhaps reflects a modern gay relationship more than it does one that was in the 1980s or even in Edwardian times. I mean, it's absolutely a portrait of a relationship of its time. Mm. It dealt with something which was almost as ill-viewed as homosexuality, which was the relationship across class barriers. You weren't supposed to go across class barriers. It's not strictly true that um, homosexual relationships weren't possible at the time because the genesis of the novel, Morris, was when Ian Forster went to visit Edward Carpenter and his lover, George Merrill, who lived in an idyllic country house in sort of commune. They were vegetarians, they wore sandals. While he was there, E.M. Forster was touched on his lower back, just above his buttocks, by George Merrill. And he said that that touch really changed his whole life. It electrified him. He felt that he'd been imbued with a new sense of his own sexuality and that that was the direct inspiration for him wanting to write Morris as a fantasy love story. Of course it's a fantasy, but there were other role models and there had been throughout history. But what there hadn't often been were relationships where there was slightly more equality between them, that it wasn't an older man and a younger boy. They're more or less 
the same age, roughly. And indeed, Ian Forster did himself have several very long-lasting relationships, which interestingly also were often across the class divide, that he had relationships with soldiers and bus conductors and most famously Bob Buckingham, a policeman, um, with whom he had a very successful and long-lived relationship. And interestingly, he was also very close to Bob Buckingham's wife. So it makes it an unusual sort of menage, if not necessarily wholly a trois. <laughs> it's amazing that a touch on the bum could inspire a work of literature like that. I'm not getting the right people to touch me on the bum. Obviously, obviously, obviously my, my novel would be done. <laughs> Uh, can you tell me a bit more about your um, own experience with the film? Like, do you remember the first time you saw it? I do remember the first time I saw it. I think I was really blown away by the look of the film and the beauty of it all. And it was very, very rare for two such handsome men to be portraying gay characters because often the homosexual had to be seen as evil, perverted, ugly, devious... Whereas this was a really sensitive and beautiful portrayal of the anxiety and repression in two young men and then a third coming along. I absolutely loved the film at the time. Um, but it's also fascinating to see Hugh Grant playing someone be an MP in the light of his recent performance in A Very English Scandal. It's Jeremy um, Thorpe, yeah. Playing Jeremy Thorpe. It is alleged that Thorpe and Mr Scott began a homosexual affair. That's me. Peter Taylor accused On the telly. There is only one way for us to survive. I will talk, I will be heard and I will be seen. So it's, it's a fabulous pairing towards the beginning of his career and right now that he should have played two such similar characters. James Ivory, who directed the film, also wrote um, Call Me By Your Name, which won him the Oscar last year. And I wondered if there was any spiritual connection between the films, two films other than the same man working on them. Well, I was actually totally unaware that James Ivory was a gay man who'd been in a relationship with Ishmael Merchant, his producer. Um, and I think that what his making of Call Me By Your Name is, is, is a kind of a culmination of a love story um, that it shows how far we've come that James Ivory was able to write a film that was fairly explicit um, and so beautifully and sensitively done and and adored by the critics and fabulous acting um, from its leads. Now, I think we probably couldn't have Call Me By Your Name without the example of films like Morris. Brian, thank you very much. And Morris is on re-release in select cinemas across the UK from July 27th, including two weeks of screenings at the BFI South Bank in London. You can watch an interview with its stars Hugh Grant and James Wilby from this year's Flair Festival on our YouTube channel. Review time. First performed is the new film written and directed by Paul Schrader. Him of Taxi Driver, Bits of Raging Bull, and more recently, attempts to get projects made that end in heartbreak. See that amazing New York Times piece about his aborted Lindsay Lohan film, The Canyons, and that row over his 2014 film, Dying of the Light, a thriller that was taken away and re-edited by its backers without Schrader's permission. But the gods, finally, seem to be finding in Schrader's favour. 
He's back as writer-director of First Reformed, a modern American parable in which Ethan Hawke plays the Reverend Toller, a boozy, grief-stricken Protestant minister spiralling down to hell in full view of his dwindling congregation. Amanda Seyfried co-stars as Mary, the pregnant parishioner who comes to the Reverend seeking help. Here's a clip. I have decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year, and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My son's the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. So how are you? Oh, I'm fine. No, really. See, it's been a while since we've talked. Even a pastor needs a pastor. Did you see the doctor? You need someone to take care of you. Well, I want you to be happy. I know that nothing can change, and I know there is no hope. Reverend Toller? Yes, Mary? You must come over. You must come over now. That's a clip from First Reformed. Anna, Paul Schrader, when he can get a film made, is never boring, is he? No, he's been one of my... Um, I hesitate to say favorite. He's been one of the most interesting film creators because he's a writer and a director. He was a writer first before becoming a director. Anything he does is just so packed with ideas. And his last couple of films have been extremely interesting because he was trying out working with digital, working with non-actors. I think the last thing of his that I remember getting a lot of attention was his film with Lindsay Lohan and um, James Dean, yeah. The Canyons, yeah, um, and which was another collaboration with Brett Easton Ellis as well. But First Reformed is completely transcendent. I saw it a while ago when it premiered in Venice last year. And it kind of has stuck with me ever since. And I'm really glad to be seeing um, how other people are reacting to it now. It's an incredibly austere film. It is. And yet it does have, as you say, that transcendent element to it as well. I did find it a little boring <laughs> at times. Again, you're squinting at me like I'm... I'm squinting. I'm contemplating throwing this water at you. Let me um, elaborate a little <laughs> elaborate, bit. Elaborate, please. It's a character study, essentially, of the Reverend Toller. But again, I'm, I feel like I'm metering everything today but it did feel like a character study of america as well but america from an old white guy's perspective which is totally fine totally valid but there are elements of characters kind of talking about the youth of today and talking about the religious youth of today and what they are and what they aren't and it felt like schrader's voice was screaming through at that point there's a line which is something like young people don't want to lead today they want to follow with the kind of reference to twitter wrapped up in that and it just felt a little bit like I'm seeing a very specific closeted view of the world from an older white man, which isn't very popular at the moment. But at the same time, it's absolutely true to his vision. And it's the film that he says he's always wanted to make, but has been too scared to make. And I responded to that also. So I did love this film, but I felt that there was elements of it that felt like there was no oxygen in it. Mm -hmm. And maybe perhaps that's the point. That's so interesting. I, I hadn't really taken it in that way and again the way I saw it felt a bit 
um, like a Schrader had, had like Schrader had designed it because I saw it in this makeshift huge cinema in Venice. It was pouring down with rain and you could hear it through the walls. Wow. So it felt like you were going into this very, very cinematic vision of faith and an exploration of faith. It felt to me like it was the film that I expected Silence, the Scorsese film, to be and the questions that it needed to raise. The expectations that I had for that film were kind of transferred onto this one, mm. which is interesting because obviously they collaborated um, on Taxi driver way back when yeah i didn't feel that curmudgeon-y portrait of america that you're describing but it makes me want to re-watch the film because again it's one of those films that is so densely packed it's interesting you mentioned that there's no oxygen in it because i can see that in a way it's a film that you can't really take all of the ideas in that it has to say with just one viewing. Mm. It kind of demands to be seen a couple of times. And I think the way you go into it as well, the first viewing, more than maybe with a lot of other films, feels very vital because if you're not in the right frame, it can seem pretentious or boring or oblique. She was becoming someone I didn't know. Opportunistic diseases, anarchy, martial law. You will live to see this. She had no idea that he was thinking of. No, I'm so frightened. These kids, they want certainty. You know, don't think, follow. They fall prey to extremism. It's a world without hope. No, I have not lost my faith. we did together was a sin. I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. You didn't tell the police, right? Take a look at your own life before you criticize others. These are frightening times. We have to be patient. Well, somebody has to do something. Are you shake as I write these lines. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Can God forgive us for what we've done to this world? Who can know the mind of God? Maybe this is the most open the traitor has ever been in one of these films. There is no kind of cool distance between the audience and the film itself. He's opening up, I think, a lot of really personal issues or, you know, questions that he's always explored through his work. You can definitely, it's a Schrader film through and through. You can trace a lot of the themes and the questions that have come up in his previous work more or less successfully. And it's interesting, I think, that this is the film where he is more in control, both as a director and a writer. He's made some really brave directorial choices. Yeah. I think the flip side of my comment about there being no oxygen mm. and it being almost like a chamber piece with it feels like one actor, even Hawk is amazing in this film, by the way. But it's excoriating about Trump's America whilst never directly referencing Trump as well, or at least the kind of modern situation we find ourselves in where the church is full of private money and environmental issues are ignored, even though they're the most desperate crisis of our times. I'm always a little, and I'm sorry that I'm picking so many holes, but I'm always a little bit iffy about films that have an environmental message just because the environmental impact of filmmaking itself is insane out of all the cultural media. But there is a real strong feeling here that we are in a time where life itself is in crisis and maybe all traders films have that there's elements of taxi driver for sure a little bit in dog eat dog his film before this mm -hmm. one but this film most purely tells us i think that humanity itself is under threat 
and there's nothing that you, the individual, can do about it other than have another shot of whiskey, which is <laughs> terrifying and frightening and heartbreaking too. I think that's actually a really beautiful way of putting it. It's a metaphor for crisis. Well, thank crisis you, Anna. <laughs> I mean, I'm full of compliments. Um, I know that generally that's a really good way of putting it. It's a film about crisis, crisis of faith, spiritual crisis, environmental crisis, a crisis of humanity, um, an emotional and sexual crisis as well, because there's so many, all the characters in First Reformed, not just Ethan Hawke, obviously, carries um, the literal kind of burden of a lot of guilt, of faith, of, you know, leadership in his community and kind of loss as well and grief. But a lot of the other characters are quite burdened mm. as well. There's a balance in there, I think, between all of the characters, even though Ethan Hawke really carries the film in a spectacular way. I agree. And just finally, before we wrap up, I'd be really interested to hear what somebody who's very religious thinks about the film as well. Because I, yes. I, I don't know about you, but I'm coming at it from an atheist perspective. So yeah. I'm seeing it very much as what's on screen is what it is until we get slightly further down the line with the story. But... I would be really fascinated to see what someone who holds strong religious beliefs mm -hmm. makes of this film and how it affects them, particularly the comments it has about the church mm -hmm. and how the church has been compromised by capitalism, essentially. I think it's always very interesting. I think Schrader goes a little bit um, deeper because I think he questions faith, mm. the concept of faith and spirituality from a very personal and not just from an, uh, a bigger organizational point of view, because there's a difference between films that examine, say, a particular church and the politics and the economics and the organizational kind of... Um, issues that kind of rise within an organized religion, they're very different from a film that explores a person's spirituality or faith and the way that they approach it. And you really got the, the kind of the church commentary from First Reformed. I very much took it as a, a from a faith-based thing and not being personally religious. I thought it delved a little bit deeper in to see how one person who was in this case affiliated with one particular branch of a church, um, how they took their faith and how they were challenged in their faith as well and how they questioned that internally and how um, they dealt with that as well. That's the part that I found interesting because it brought up a lot more questions than it tried to give answers to, which I think is a much more um, dynamic and engaging way of presenting ideas to an audience as opposed to telling them this church is bad, this church is good. Praise be, Paul Schrader is back and First Reform is on general release in the UK now. That's it for this episode. Rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, please. And let us know what you think of the show directly. You can find me and Anna on Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna is... At Anna B. Demented. We're hosted on Acast and Pete Sale is our producer. More of his work at petersale.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, your last line this week is the tagline for Blackbird, a new spy thriller written by, directed and starring Michael Riverdance flatly. Some things are still worth dying for. I've got no idea what that means. What is Some that film? It's a, have you not seen the poster? No. Incredible. Michael Why? Flatley is a super spy. Why are you talking about that and not Skyscraper? <laughs> Why? That's Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> haven't even mentioned him. I He's the new the name in action, Flatley. <laughs> <laughs>
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.